I'm only going into the office once or twice a week. So when I go, it is on. So I think about what I'm going to wear. It better be fun. I'm excited to be out of the house. And you have thousands of items to choose from since you're the chief boss lady at Armour. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We are coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in technology, business, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere, and every week on this show, we talk about some of the most interesting stories we get to cover. Our guest this week is Ambika Singh, CEO and Chief Boss Lady, I love that title, at Armoire, the Seattle-based women's clothing rental service and membership program. A Dartmouth College and MIT Sloan School of Management graduate, she worked at companies including Microsoft and Boston Consulting Group before starting Armoire in 2016. Ambika Singh, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. It's great to be here with you guys. One of our shared contacts, Shauna Swirland at Fuel Talent, she said to John and myself on a recent text message thread that you deserved the Survivor Award. <laughs> <laughs> through the pandemic. Shauna is a professional hype woman, so <laughs> you gotta love her. <laughs> so tell us about how Armoire has pivoted, what you do, what you've done, how your business has changed through this entire process of the pandemic. That's basically what is my life story in 10 seconds or less <laughs> of the last three years. <laughs> well, I will tell you in 10 seconds or less. So the long and short of it is, as you said, so Armoire is a membership-based subscription service for women to rent clothes. And we were incredibly focused on the boss lady coming into the pandemic, and we still are. But the boss lady was getting up in the morning. She was working a 15-hour day. She was mostly out of the home, and we were dressing her for all of those events that she was going to. So the pandemic represented a pretty extreme change in how we dressed our customer. So to give you a little bit of history, in 2019, we grew nearly 400%. So February of 2020 was our best financial month ever. I was in India celebrating my brother's engagement party on March 8th and heard about this little sniffly cold that seemed to be running around Seattle. And so just to be safe, we <laughs> shut our office for a week. And I actually stayed in India thinking like I would party on a little longer and come back when this thing had blown over. Of course, things happened differently than we expected. I came back to my office for one day. We sat in a war room for 12 hours and kind of tried to figure out what we were going to do next. And I never went back until last week. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about what happened in the interim. The biggest thing was that the team really came together and we realized that our team was broader than our employees and really included our members. So our members stuck with us over the last two years. Amazingly, we have more tenured customers today than we did walking into the pandemic. We went into major cash conservation mode. And so we actually turned a profit a couple months over the pandemic, which considering the growth curve we were on prior, that wasn't sort of like where we were. So amazing transformation and sort of grit from our whole team. We're really proud to have hired back everyone that we furloughed. And so our physical team is back together. So you can imagine there were many days where I woke up and expected the entire customer base to have evaporated. 
but somehow it didn't happen. And so I'll tell you kind of like what we think happened. Armoire had become so synonymous with getting up and getting ready in the morning that even though our customers weren't leaving their homes, the idea that this fresh new armor, as we call it, would arrive to kind of brighten the day, that behavior persisted, which was as amazing to me as it probably is to you. You know, we had really hoped that we had created a sticky habit that brought people joy, but this was the biggest testament of that. So we pivoted the inventory, of course, you know, we never had an athleisure category, nor did I know that sweatpants can cost $500. Um, So (laughs) we moved really up market on uh, the fun, like cashmere loungewear, and we dressed people for what they were looking for. I'm sure there were some low moments between February 2020 (laughs) and now. Tell us as a leader, how you got through those times and what you've learned from it. Yes. So low moments is the understatement of the year. So uh, the day that we closed the warehouse, which was kind of like end of March when the governor sent the directive out for only essential businesses to continue to be running. The way we found out that we were perhaps being kind of overly conservative was that the Seattle Times ran a story about warehouses staying open, except for poor, sad startups like ours, who had closed their warehouse and uh, were packing off. And so there were amazing moments in terms of like, wow, like the lack of information about what's going on, the sort of like craziness of being right in the middle of this in a way that I never expected. I have lots of degrees. None of them were in public safety and like how to keep viruses away from people that you love. So it was a There were some amazingly low moments, but the biggest thing was just how do we make sure that we do the best that we can today with the information that we have? I got a lot of great advice about not running down analysis paralysis holes and instead, what can you do? And what you can do is what execution power you have in the moment and what information you have in the moment. And tomorrow it might be different. So I think that really helped me personally. And I tried to convey that agency to the team. So, you know, we still have agency over what we do. It may not look the same as it did yesterday, but I found that to be empowering for myself personally and for our team more broadly. For folks who are not familiar with your business, I understand that you have essentially a series of plans ranging from $79 a month for four items to $139 a month for unlimited And the idea is that this can be someone's wardrobe. This can be what they wear, they subscribe. How did you see customer patterns change apart from shifting to the $500 sweatpants? Did did their usage of armoire change through this two-year period? Yeah, so that's a great question. Walking into the pandemic, we basically had the one plan, which was the unlimited swap plan, which allowed people to get four items and swap them as many times as they wanted. What we learned was that people were looking for different kinds of flexibility. And certainly the desire to change things became less apparent. And so we launched capsule plans, which are lower on the price point and also give people sort of like more items at once. So seven item capsule is our top capsule plan, also the most popular. And so people could 
reduce their number of times they needed to leave the house if they were going to the post office to change it out. So that was attractive. And then the lower price point also gave people access, but more value. So interestingly, uh, in the last couple months, we're seeing the shift back to the unlimited plan as people's lives change again. So we're feeling fortunate to be able to be flexible with our customers' needs. And as we go back to more normal times, and we are seeing companies return to the office, including yours, including Microsoft, Expedia, are you adapting again? Are you changing your lineup of clothing? And do you see long-term changes in fashion of what women are going to wear into the office? So that's a great question. So I'll answer the front part of your question first. One of the reasons that we were able to pivot the inventory so quickly is because we've always had a reactive mindset when it comes to buying. And so what that means is that we are very close to sort of like what our customers want. And I'll, and I'll tell you how. So the armoire closet is personalized. When you first join our service, you take a quiz where we ask you a bunch of questions about the colors that you like, the items that you like. And then that algorithm over time learns more and more. So every time you return something to us, you let us know whether you like the style or the fit. And so we're using a mix of kind of collaborative filters and a few other kind of like algorithms to help us figure out what are you looking for? What, whose preferences do you look the most like? And this is particularly interesting when we think about fit, because I think most of our competitors have thought about fit as an objective standard. So there's a lot of traction around getting a 3D scan of somebody's body or trying to chug measurements. And we really take a different approach. I think fit is deeply subjective. If you have ever tried to tell a woman that she looks good in something she doesn't think she looks good in, you will understand what I mean. (laughs) So people need to think that the clothes fit them. And that is a, a subjective understanding that is only hers. And so because of that, we've always spent a lot of time trying to understand the signals that we're getting in and we get a lot of them. So as you can imagine, if we get a signal on every single thing, it's a 100% closed loop. We have a lot of information about what people want. So to make that just like kind of humorous, in the first week after the pandemic, we suddenly had a ton of signal around a loungewear category that we really, it didn't exist for us at that point. And so we were able to adapt and we buy on a weekly cadence instead of months or even years out, like a more traditional retailer. So we're making small and frequent and agile buys. And so our ability to kind of like learn into that was very real. Same thing is happening now. So we've still continued that weekly buying cadence. And so as things flex, our inventory really does flex. One really interesting trend is actually a trend towards what we're calling a micro event. What that means is that all of us have not done the normal social things for a long time. And so the desire to make that dinner with your couple friends into something that's more than jeans and a t-shirt is very real. And so we're seeing people in sequin dusters or big furry coats or things that are really making a everyday, what used to be an everyday event into something exciting. And so actually our investment in things that you might think look more outrageous than ever before and more statementy is real. And so I don't think we're going back to where we were before, but I think it'll actually be a more polarized kind of look at things that are perhaps like even more fun and extravagant 
and things that are more comfortable. I think a really interesting piece that I'm not sure what will happen to is the pencil skirt. If you are familiar with a pencil skirt, it is um, a very tight <laughs> um, skirt that zips up and kind of in my mind is sort of like the epitome of something that looks good but will never feel good. Um, so we'll see what happens to items like that because uh, I think women may have cast those aside permanently. We're talking this week with Ambika Singh, CEO of clothing subscription startup Armoire. Coming up, we nerd out on the really interesting economics of this business. I wanted a career in IT, but I didn't know where to start. WGU makes it simple. Their accredited online degree programs cover all kinds of IT specialties, and they have valuable industry certifications built in at no extra cost. The payoff? Having those certs back up my degree makes me look even better to future employers. A nonprofit university that includes top industry certs in their programs? I choose WGU. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. So the micro events, that, that seems like it's more on the social side, or is that in the business environment? And do you see any patterns or trends in the business world of what women are coming back in and wearing if they are going back into the office? Or is it too early for that? So I think for our boss lady, this, uh, the idea of like work and, and play and social is all very intertwined. She's most often mom. And so she's doing all the things and certainly not kind of like checking back in at home to do the Mr. Rogers change before she goes out to the next thing. Um, so what she wears in the morning is usually what she's wearing all day. So uh, those two things I think are quite wrapped up in each other. So we see the same kind of like trend happening in business clothes. So I, I actually am wearing this very bright yellow work dress today. I'm only going into the office once or twice a week. So when I go, it is on. So I think about what I'm going to wear. It better be fun. I'm excited to be out of the house. And so that sort of like concept of the micro event is translating even as we go back to the office. And you have thousands of items to choose from since you're the chief boss lady at Armour. So uh <laughs> One quick follow-up, because you mentioned this quick pivot on inventory, and that's something you are seeing certainly more in the in the fashion world. But I'm curious, just given the constraints on the supply chain, if that's had an impact on your mm. business, because it seems like a lot of industries aren't able to pivot that quickly just because of the bottlenecks on the supply chain. That's a great question. One of the things about why we do what we do at Armoire, part of our mission is to really get people to consume less and that's at the consumer end, but also at our end. And so because of the fact that we are literally recycling clothes as part of our, that's how our business works, we're not buying the massive quantities that a normal retailer would be because one thing services many customers. And so that's one of the reasons why it's an interesting business too, because financial side is, is quite interesting in that way where we're being able to use the single asset to service many people. Because of that, we weren't hit with sort of like the same kind of impact on the supply chain because we're just a smaller buyer in that way. That said, of course, it's like that hasn't translated across all of our partners. We certainly have partners who have struggled to sort of like um, get things together and orders together and things like that. But sort of at a macro level for us, because we are a smaller buyer, uh, we didn't see any kind of like 
major impact in terms of us being able to have access to inventory. Describing the clothes as an asset is fascinating. And now that really turns a gear in my head. And it makes me wonder about what your financials are like. And obviously you're a private company and I realize you have to to be careful about what you disclose, but can you give us a sense for what your margins are like, what your balance sheet is like in this world where the things that you ship to customers are not products, but assets. That's fascinating. It, it is really interesting. So I'll tell you one kind of like geeky accounting thing is that depreciation in our business actually matters because uh, we, we think of it as an operating cost because we don't have the standard cogs of an item. If we were selling a t-shirt, we would we would list the cost of the t-shirt as part of our operating costs and then make sure that, you know, we're recovering that plus plus so that we can get margin. But for us, we think about the cost of clothing as depreciation. And so what that means is like, we're looking at a depreciation schedule that has two inputs, one, which is the number of turns the item has, and the other one, which is like the time elapsed that it has lived, and then we depreciate it over time. And so a secret for us is going to be our ability to sort of like deeply understand how that depreciation schedule works more and more over time, because we have the ability to flex how much we pay to purchase a piece, because we have an idea of what that asset to use that your favorite word again is going to actually create in the long term. We sell our clothing to our customers if they would like, or we donate it at end of life. And so the, the asset calculation has both the rental revenue as well as the estimated liquidation value. So in that way, it's like, it is a really interesting financial model. It has the cleaning and the labor and um, the shipping and the depreciation all kind of like in the operating costs. And I'm not going to tell you our margin or what our balance sheet looks like. <laughs> I would imagine you end up looking back at the old Netflix DVD P&L to sort of compare, because there are a lot of fascinating parallels between those two businesses. Yes, absolutely. So I started this business when I was um, an MBA. And so one of the exciting things about doing it in school was I had access to all these amazing classmates who had worked at different versions of businesses like this. And like you said, so the Blockbuster, Netflix, the car rental business was oh. one that I looked at. Um, pretty interesting to try to figure out like what, how, what our parallels were there. But the ability to sort of, yeah, like be predictive about how this asset gets maximized is even more nuanced in apparel than it is in either of those two because apparel depreciates so differently. Like just to give you an example, like, you know, we'll have some things that unfortunately never make it through their first dry cleaning. A great pair of jeans may make it through 30 dry cleanings. So that the span of understanding uh, what this thing's predictive value is, is, um, is always going to be something that we're continuing to turn the dials on. We're talking this week with Ambika Singh, CEO of clothing subscription startup Armoire. Coming up, competition with Rent the Runway. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, 
as if human, ethics and artificial intelligence is now available wherever books are sold. Since we're geeking out on the business model, which, which I love to do, by the way, this is a great conversation. Not everyone's a big believer in this, in part because of those challenges you were mentioning there. There's the sorting costs, there's the delivery, there's the returning, there's the cleaning. This is a very complex business and not an easy business. And I'm guessing you're not going to tell us the margins, but I'm guessing you're not talking about software style margins, <laughs> Microsoft back in the day, you know, monopoly margins. I mean, this is this is a hard business to run. And so hats off to you for pivoting and getting to those two months, a few months of profitability. Thank you. But not everybody believes in it because of those things. There was a Bloomberg piece on your competitor, Rent the Runway, earlier this year. And one of the analysts in the piece said, the business model is very challenged with overhead costs that are inescapable. And you've seen Rent the Runway stock has really hit the wall. I think it's down yep. 70% since they went public. So your your public comparable is is struggling. And I know there are some differences between the two of you. But what do you say to those critics that are like, gosh, this is just not a highly scalable or profitable business? So uh, one thing I will tell you about our margin, you're right. They're not software margins, but they are better than a lot of very large retailers. And I'll tell you how um, and why it's different than what Rent the Runway does. The personalization promise is super important for us because what we're selling our members is the perfect piece for her. Why that's important is because some of our competitors, Rent the Runway included, are selling people a promise that looks much closer to what traditional retail does, which is I'm selling you the thing that is in my warehouse for six weeks. It's super trendy. It's super on season. And after that, I'm going to change my entire inventory. And that, if you think about the conversation we just had about how the depreciation schedule works, that doesn't work. If you're not able to bring back a piece and achieve profitability at an individual item level, your business is in trouble. And I think that Rent the Runway has not been able to uh, change the promise with their customer from anything but literally renting the runway. So the thing has come off the runway, they want to rent it. The financial kind of like equation behind that doesn't work for two reasons. One, you haven't achieved profitability on a, on a per piece basis. And the other thing is you haven't achieved customer loyalty or um, value in a way that exceeds what she can do from a retailer perspective, except for the promise on her wallet. And so what, what I mean by that is we're promising our customer, hey, we, we know more about you every day. We know what fits you. We make this efficient sort of shopping experience where we're far exceeding just bringing down things from the runway and hoping that um, that you like them. We're making sure that we deliver something to you that is really attuned just to you. And a traditional retailer can never have the kind of information that we have on our customer. Our average customer is getting between seven and 20 things uh, from us every month. So our ability to display value from a personalization perspective really works. If you're only making one or two purchases from a retailer every year, their depth of data on you and their ability to build into that collaborative filter that we were talking about is just really shallow. And so I think personalization in retail, everybody has a personalization algorithm, but you really have to think about like, does your business speak to one, getting enough data and two, having the frequency with a customer that you can deliver that value. 
And that's why I think rental actually has this amazing ability to deliver on the personalization promise. And that in turn turns into a really valuable customer because we have customers now who literally have been with us for the entire life of the company. So 65 plus months. And you can imagine that for us to continue to win her an incredibly competitive space, right? So there are retailers up the wazoo who are yelling at our customers every day. So the fact that we're holding on to them for five plus years can only happen if your understanding of the customer is good enough that you're putting in front of her the best thing that you have. Well, you make a strong argument and you've made this argument, I know, to many in the investment community. I wanted to point out you've raised uh, some capital from some pretty notable folks, uh, Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, GoDaddy CEO Aman Bhutani, amongst many other notable investors. So they are believers in you. I guess talk about how as an entrepreneur, you were able to open those doors and get them interested in this model and convinced to write a check. We have been very fortunate to be supported by a lot of incredible investors, particularly in the Seattle community. We have been sort of around, I guess, now for close to five years. Um, and so our ability to kind of like get the story out there, I would say the biggest leverage point for us are happy customers. So a lot of those people that you listed have someone in their home who uses the product and it's somewhat transformational because it's both great for, we talked about delivering joy, you know, it's fun to like put on something new. It's also great for whomever shares the closet with an armoire customer, because suddenly their somewhat large closet may come down to a very small amount of things. The customer always has something to wear. So there's not sort of the agony of like running out to the mall and the number of packages and returns really reduces. And so I think it's a product that once you kind of like see it in action, you become a believer in sort of the power of it. And so to answer your question, that was a big point of, I guess, leverage for me in the conversation was that if I could get somebody um, using the product or someone who lived with somebody using the product, um, that has been really how I have gotten myself out there. Going back to Rent the Runway and your competition against them, last uh, no, I think it was a couple of years ago, they cut their unlimited plan and you've kept yours and kind of have held it out there as a badge of honor. And I'm curious, as you've led the company, how you maybe have used that decision by Rent the Runway to boost your own position in the market and maybe gain some share, or is that even not a factor that you're taking into consideration? Oh, we absolutely are. And I think, again, it comes back to the personalization because the unlimited plan is actually has strong margin on it as long as you're sending people things that they want. And we can see this in our own data, right? Like cold start problem. We are frankly not as good at recommending things to you in your first week, in your first month. We get much better over time. And so our margin as people kind of like hold on to things that they like, they wear them once or twice instead of hey, this whole box and fit me, it's coming back, that really changes. And because our competitor doesn't have a personalization algorithm and they're not thinking about recommendations like that, they potentially didn't have those kinds of advantages over time. And so I think for them, it continued to be margin dilutive and they weren't able to sort of like see that change. So tell us about the logistics of this. 
and the warehouse? Do you do RFID tracking? Like, where are you in terms of the tech? Because it seems like as much as this is an e-commerce business, it's also a logistics business behind the scenes. It's very much a logistics business because we have nearly 100% returns. So that plus the fact that if you think about back again to our depreciation conversation, we win if things are moving. We do not win if inventory is sitting around. And so the warehouse looks more like a fresh food warehouse in terms of like how many turns are happening versus like a standard e-commerce warehouse. A, a standard e-commerce warehouse might make one or two inventory turns in a year. Our average item is hanging on the rack for sub seven days. Average wow. item. So like think about that. That includes like things that are totally unseasonal, um, you know, ball gowns. So we think a lot about like, how do we make sure that the bulk of this inventory is moving? And again, like the advantage that we have there is that we know so much about what people want in the moment and we're able to be reactive behind that. And that's what allows us to really like get those items moving around in the right way. And so it is very much a logistics business because it's so complicated and unique. We outsource essentially none of it. So most e-commerce businesses also have a great 3PL who packs up their stuff for them. And, uh, you know, you'll, it's very common that people don't run their own logistics whatsoever. And we've always run our own logistics because it's a almost impossible thing to outsource. And so we started in an apartment in Capitol Hill, <laughs> chasing down the postman every day because we had been packing too late. Um, things have evolved <laughs> significantly to your point. Now we are actually in the process of RFIDing our clothes. So we barcoded them a couple of years ago. And to give you a sense for scale, 75,000 items um, have RFID tags sewn into them by hand. So it is like a pretty amazing undertaking. And I'll tell you, in this labor environment, our team has just incredible commitment. They were able to hire a spike team so that we could get these RFIDs in. And I mean, I was not a believer. I have to tell you, I was like, I don't think we can hire like this many people in this environment. Like, how is this going to happen? And the team just sort of very committed, has an incredible network. And uh, like, I'll tell you in one in particular, the, the woman who ran this team for us, she graduated from a fashion school in Ballard a few years ago. She's been with us for nearly five years. Um, and she reached into her personal network of people she went to school with. And suddenly we staffed a, a spike team literally in three days. So if you find someone who can uh, put together a team of sewers in three days in this uh, environment, like it is very hard. And so I would say like one of the things that I consider to be deep, deep assets of ours is the incredible team that we have in the warehouse. Most of them have years of tenure with us. They came back to us after uh, we had to furlough the team is back together. It's a um, primarily women or people who identify as women team. So that's also like very unusual. They're all great friends. And so it really is like an amazing experience to be a part of a business like this, because coming from tech, I had never had the good fortune of sort of like having such a diverse team of folks from like a skills perspective. We have the MIT PhD and uh, the incredible sewer from the Ballard Fashion School. And everybody has an equal hand in getting this package out to our customer. And so it really is like 
the true expression of appreciation of diversity because like we need all the humans. They're all different, but we need them all. And so it's a really fun environment in that way to be putting together something like this. Any pushback from members on the RFID tags from privacy concerns? So that's a great question. Um, I mean, we'll see, because right now I think the experience that we're going to deliver from it is pretty exciting. So the RFIDs are important for us in the warehouse. Honestly, this was crazy to me. We have both barcodes now and RFIDs because they solve for different problems. So the barcode gives us an individual read on what the garment is and the RFID gives us kind of like location. Right now, we can't do both things with one tag. So we'll see as things kind of like evolve from a technology perspective, whether that changes. But one of the big unlocks for us with RFID, and when I say like what what it gives us is location, is that we are um, in the next two weeks opening the doors on a contactless shopping experience. And so what that means is that we have reopened a boutique. If, if you remember in the prior uh, in in the old, before times, we had two boutiques, one downtown and one in Kirkland. We're now opening one back near our warehouse, 83 South King Street. And our members will enter the boutique. They'll either open the armoire app or um, sign in on a kiosk. They'll shop for what they're looking for. And then when they leave, they'll take their clothing and slide it across the RFID table and uh, they'll be on their way. So it's a absolutely contactless experience. If you're just feeling like you don't want to talk to anybody today because all of us introverts are going to get re reimagined into this extroverted world and maybe you just need a private moment, <laughs> um, all of those things will be possible for you. And so we're really trying to deliver on this dream closet idea where our closet is your closet and you come and go as you please. And if you want to talk to someone, great. And if you don't, you also don't have to. When you say they are going to browse for clothes, will they do that on a screen or will they actually do that on a rack? So both. Great question. Um, so I just actually picked up this yellow dress yesterday. And so before I went down to the boutique, I had ordered my new case. So the algorithm had given me a set of recommendations. I picked what I wanted. I submitted my case. And then I went down to the boutique to pick it up. And as I was looking around, I saw a couple more things that I liked. I tried on the clothes that I had ordered and one thing didn't fit me. So I left it behind and I swapped it for something new. So it is truly kind of a offline, online experience where you get kind of the best of both worlds. So that works because you're, that's also your warehouse facility, correct? Where you're processing the clothing? So it's actually detached from the warehouse, unfortunately. But, but they're Josh. but they're but they're they're next to one another. They're very they are, they they're are. In very close proximity. So I guess my question is, could you imagine doing that in a San Francisco or St. Louis or Chicago or wherever where maybe you don't have the infrastructure built up around your warehousing? Yeah, so that that's a great question. And the way that it will work when it's detached from the warehouse is that similarly the customer will order before she comes in, we call them shop racks, which is the extra stuff that hasn't been ordered. We're using the same kind of intelligence to figure out what should go on the shop rack. So what leaves that boutique on a regular basis, um, that that's what guides us in terms of like what we put on the rack. A simple learning, for example, is like, 
coats are a really easy thing to kind of like try on, grab and go. So we we stock a lot of coats in the, in the boutique. So that's kind of like how we would translate that is to be smart about what we ship down there in terms of like what doesn't have a customer's name on it already, and then let customers pre-order and it will ship down in the same two day shipping. And then they'll be able to show up and try things on and go. And just so I'm clear in this contactless environment, no one ends up leaving like handing you the dress or the top or whatever. It's completely automated. Yeah. So it's an, if you've seen like an RFID kind of like tunnel table, you literally that you kind of move it across that. And um, we've built tech that helps us understand who you are, marries it, puts it in a package, and now it's in your account. Todd, you know what I'm thinking, right? Uh, yeah, they're, we, they're, we really it, want to go out and cover this when you open it. Yeah, yeah. When you open it, we want to do <laughs> this. We, we want to do a GeekWire experience there. Uh, but it reminds me, a former Amazon executive here in the Seattle area, Nadia Shurabora, had a company called Hointer, which was big on this kind of automated retail environment. And the promise of it's pretty interesting when you think about your model. If you can perfect this and get it dialed, that can be some secret sauce for the business. It's like the technology, like putting that into other retail locations. Is that something that you would consider? Is it is it patented? Is it or are you like what's the promise of having a tech a really probably pretty big technology story behind yep. Armoire? We've always been a technology company. I came from tech. I knew nothing about fashion uh, when I arrived on day one. And so it always to me was the interesting part was like, how do we use the data, our ability to be sort of like innovative to deliver something that was different? Because I, I my eyes were not closed to the fact that I was walking into an incredibly competitive industry. And so the only way in my eyes to win is to be able to deliver more value to the customer. And that has to come from innovative experiences. And so we're very much um, bullish on this being an experience that could translate into lots of different corners. I think we have an advantage again, because we have a membership model with our customers. And so uh, everyone who walks in, we know something about them. And we know uh, for them, you know, s similar to the Amazon experience in the Amazon Go store, you need an Amazon account to be able to have that experience. So we look different than a standard retailer in that way and have that advantage. But certainly um, what we build here could translate into lots of different corners. Yeah, I was going to say the Amazon Go for fashion. So Absolutely. Yeah. We got so into your business here, which is <laughs> a testament to how interesting it is. Yeah, Todd, I think when we pitched this, we were like, hey, we want to talk about your return to office. And we got into, we <laughs> went, hey, this is what happens, right? We're almost out of time. <laughs> um, but could tell us about where you are as Armoire in terms of your return to the, the physical office, because I know you've got some news on that front as well. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the interesting things about the pandemic, and I kind of talked about this earlier, but I mean, one of my favorite things about working at Armoire is the team. And so we've always been very, um, not that we've even really had to work that hard on it, but we've always been very kind of like democratic and egalitarian across like uh, how our policies work. We don't have like a you know, a tale of two nations in terms of like, this is how the warehouse works. This is how the tech team works. That changed in a really dramatic way when the pandemic came. And it was, um, it was tough for me to figure out how to manage through that. And what I'm talking about specifically was the fact that our incredible warehouse team came to work every day over the last two years and the rest of our team worked from home. And so 
the kind of like the change in, in what that looked like for half of our team was kind of just tough to figure out. And a couple of things that we did was we focused really, uh, I guess, specifically on like how to build the safest environment that we could. Um, we're really proud of the fact that we never had a, um, a major COVID outbreak. Of course, like people, we supported them when, when they came in contact and um, we did paid leave and all that kind of stuff. But one of the reasons that we were able to sort of like persist through this time is because the warehouse team took it upon themselves to create guidelines that worked for everyone that could be adhered to that like people embraced. So long story short, like we have always actually through this whole process had a big chunk of our team coming into the office every day. So this return to work is for the part of the team that has been home. We had our first team meeting where we're all back together. I sent you guys a video two days ago and there was a good amount of tears, I would say, um, because, you know, we've been on Zoom together, but it was different to have the whole family back in the room. And so really exciting that we are sort of coming back to the one team. That said, I think that it will always look different now than what it looked like before, because um, it's a fully optional um, for any of our our employees who can work remote. It's fully optional because like things are still crazy as I have a new five month old. So I'm learning the ways of um, parenthood and like how crazy it is to not have regular childcare and sort of there being lots of things going on, as you guys know, with like schools being open and closed. And so long story short, like it's definitely going to be a optional work environment for us for a long time, for people who can work from home. But the desire to sort of be back together is super real. John mentioned earlier that one of your investors is Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella and covering Microsoft I have recognized Satya's signature style of the, you probably know the official name of it, but it's like a, a fabric polo with skinny jeans and uh, sneakers with white soles. I don't know if it's like the Satya look in my view. I'm sure somebody else yes. might have created it. I know that there are out there menswear subscription programs. Would Armoire ever move into menswear itself? So our members are very loud and vocal about the fact that we we need to get there quick. So it's interesting because I think that men are often like, uh, why would I have this rental thing? And then once they watch their partner use it, they're like, oh, this is so convenient. You never go shopping. Somebody else does all of your dry cleaning and you continue to send me clothes that fit me and that people think are cool. So we'll definitely get there. Kids is another thing. I mean, I, I, yeah, I have this five-month-old who basically uses his clothes like they're disposable anyways. <laughs> so I would love to be able to, it like breaks my sustainability heart that we're constantly growing out of things that are essentially brand new. So both of those things, our members want us to get there um, and we are focused on continuing to deliver value to her. Another interesting thing is like the line between sort of like gender in clothing is very blurry. Um, and so it almost feels like so last year for us to think about it as like two different businesses. It's really like we need to um, create the scale to be able to invest in different preference sets, which is kind of like how we think about it and different size groups. And that's how we'll think about expanding into more traditional menswear. We could talk to you for hours. You <laughs> clearly got very interested people here in terms of your business. Ambika Singh, the CEO of Armoire, thank you very much for joining us. 
Thank you, guys. This was a blast. Thanks for listening to GeekWire. To see all of our coverage, go to geekwire.com and be sure to subscribe to our daily email newsletter to catch all of our headlines. Our podcast is produced by Kurt Milton. Our theme music is by Daniel L.K. Caldwell. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. We'll talk to you next time on GeekWire.